This week I heard Dr. Henry Cloud speak on the coronavirus, and one of the topics he discussed was how our brains respond in crisis. He said we all have a mental map, a perceived structure in our minds of how life is supposed to work. So for instance, you normally you might wake up on a Monday morning at 6 a.m. and you've got a meeting at 8 and you know you're going to have lunch with a colleague at noon. And knowing these things gives us a sense of calm and a feeling of control. But crisis means a sudden and dramatic disruption of what's normal. When crisis hits, it's, it's like a great big error message that interrupts the map. It comes into our brains and everything is thrown off. All our perceived control goes right out the window. And now the mental map that tells us how life is supposed to work, it no longer works. But Dr. Cloud also made a great observation that to be a Christian means we've been given a new map. We who belong to Christ have been given a new worldview. We don't see the world the same anymore. We've been given new priorities, new expectations, new hopes. Now that doesn't mean that we're somehow oblivious to crisis, but it does, or at least it should, change how we respond. What I want us to do, I want us to look today at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, we, we are given what we might call a new map. This is our new map. These are the deep down settled truths that guide us through times of crisis, through times of fear, through times of pain or grief, whatever it may be. Peter is writing to the church here to grant them comfort and strength and courage in the midst of suffering. And he aims to show us something, that, that the gospel, when we talk about the good news of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection for us, we're talking about something more than just what we believe. The good news, the gospel, really does transform us. It really is meant to change us from top to bottom. And I think here in 1 Peter we'll see how. So 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like us to look together at verse 3. Peter is writing to us, to the church. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, in his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You know, for so long I lived with the impression that being a Christian simply meant you try really hard to love God and to do good. Be a better person each and every day. That's the goal. That's what it means to be a Christian. And while there is some wonderful aspiration there, that is not fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. That's not the essence of our faith. Not something that we try to do and accomplish and earn. Verse 3 is so wonderful and so clear. God in his mercy 
has caused us to be born again. God has recreated us. This is what it is to be a Christian. God has to intervene and save us. And he gives us not just a better life, not just improvement, but he gives an entirely new life. That's why it's called a new birth. And with the new birth, Peter says, comes a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is a living hope? Uh, We all know this, that hope is necessary for the human heart. I mean, everybody has to have hope. We can't live without it. And so everybody has to ground their hope and build their hope on something or on someone. So we, we do this in all sorts of different ways. We may put our hope in ourselves and in our, in our own sense of achievement. We may hope in the government or some, some other agency that we think might solve the world's problems. We can hope in relationships or in our careers or in a certain level of income that we just think will surely bring us fulfillment. We all hope. But the truth is, if we're honest, all of our hopes are dead ends. If they're temporary, if they're of this world only, they either fall short in time and space Or we fulfill them. We actually see our hopes through to the end, and we realize in the end that we can't take any of it with us. Every hope has a terminus. Every hope has an end, if it's only temporary. Our loved ones die, eventually we die, and hope dies with us. But a living hope is something eternal. A living hope is something beyond us. It's beyond our circumstances because it's grounded in a person who has risen from the dead. Think about this. If your hope is in a person for whom death was not the end, that Jesus actually rose from the grave and conquered death in eternal victory, then your hope truly is alive and your hope cannot be temporary. Against all hope, he rose again, and therefore our hope is alive. There's there's an amazing book called The Hiding Place. It was written by a woman named Corey Ten Boom. I'd really encourage you to read it. This is a woman whose entire family was sent to a Nazi concentration camp as punishment for protecting Jews during the Holocaust. And there's a place in the story where Corey is being interrogated by a Nazi officer. His name is Lieutenant Rams. And she makes a very courageous remark to him about her belief in God and in the Bible. Well, the officer quickly shuts her down and he sends her away. But the next morning, he comes to her cell himself, unlocks the gate, and brings her into the courtyard, just the two of them. And here's what Corey writes. I could not sleep last night, the lieutenant said, thinking about that book where you've read such different ideas. What else does it say in there? And then Corey writes, she says, On my closed eyelids the sun glimmered and blazed. It says, I began slowly, that a light has come into the world so that we need no longer walk in the dark. Is there darkness in your life, lieutenant? There was a very long silence. There is great darkness, he said at last. I cannot bear the work I do here. 
Then all at once he was telling me about his wife and children in Bremen, about their garden, their dogs, their summer hiking vacations. Bremen was bombed again last week, he said. Each morning I ask myself, are they still alive? Then Corey speaks. There is one who has them always in his sight, Lieutenant Roms. Jesus is the light the Bible shows to me, the light that can shine even in such darkness as yours. Now, where on earth does Corey get this kind of hope and courage and strength, a living hope that not even a Nazi death camp can take away from her? A living hope that propels her to share Christ with a man who could have had her shot or gassed with a single word. See, Corey's hope was alive because she knew her Savior was alive. This is the hope that Peter is speaking of. You see it in verse 4? You obtain an inheritance, he says, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In a world where everything fades, we are given a life and a grace that never does and never will. No circumstance outside of you, no failure inside of you can defile what God has reserved for you by faith, and you are protected by his divine power to see it through. The most powerful being in the universe holds you in his hand and will fulfill his promise. Now, Peter gives, there's an important distinction here we, we can't miss. He says, on one hand, we have a living hope. That phrase is present tense today. But Peter also tells us that our inheritance is reserved in heaven. He says there's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in other words, Peter's true comfort for these people, his true comfort for us, is not that things will be just perfect in the here and now. No, he's pointing us to a hope beyond the world, beyond time and space as we know it. There's a salvation that is still yet to come, a redemption of our bodies that has not yet occurred. And so we've got to deal with both the present and the future in terms of how we understand our hope. Now, here's the, the threat, potential threat, that if the, the inheritance, if the salvation, the redemption is laid up in heaven for us, if it's yet future, we might be tempted to just hunker down and wait it out. Basically, just get through life the best we can and pin all our hopes on the life to come. Right? Think only of heaven and, and fail to live in the here and now. And see, that's, that is to miss the point. As if heaven is all that matters and this life is just, we're just a passing through. Now, listen, if our true hope and treasure are laid up in heaven, this life, the here and now, actually has more meaning, not less. Our hope should actually make us better neighbors, better families, better employees. The here and now is different because our hope is yet future. Think about it. Think about how much you and I have to offer our world 
right now. Who should be more joyful than those who know Jesus? Not fake plastic happiness, but true and deep joy. Who should be more generous than those who know they have an eternal inheritance that money cannot buy? Who should be more merciful than those who have received the ultimate mercy in Christ? Who should be more courageous than those who have a Savior that is raised from the dead? Who should be more hopeful than those whose hope is grounded in God's eternal goodness and not in life's circumstances? See, our future hope changes how we live now. It gives this life so much more meaning than we can imagine. In the midst of this crisis, the true nature of the church ought to shine through. Because we are a people, we possess an indestructible identity, an unfading inheritance, and this is a hope that we now present to the world This is a hope that ought to turn us outward, and we say, anybody can get in on this. Come on in. Christians were made for moments like this. Our future hope makes the present life vastly more meaningful and significant. Now, at this point, Peter makes kind of a pivot. Uh, He introduces a new layer to the conversation. Remember, I started this message talking about crisis. We're living in the midst of a crisis, and this living hope sounds amazing, but how does it actually equip us for hard times? How does our faith sustain us in the harsh realities of life? Well, look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, What we know of Peter's audience, these were early Christians in the Roman Empire who were mocked, maligned, slandered, and imprisoned. Their businesses were blacklisted. Their property was plundered. Some were even killed, all because of their faith, all because of the fact that they were Christians. And in the midst of all that, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Huh? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Okay, again, It's strange enough that they're rejoicing, but then Peter says, if necessary? Wait a minute. How can suffering be necessary? Y'all, this is such an important verse for us. That word necessary has a couple of different meanings. It's all central to our understanding of our own present pain, our own predicament. When, When Peter says, you rejoice even though now, if necessary, you've encountered trials. Think about this. First, the necessity of trial. Peter is telling us that our hardships are under the will of God. Let's hammer this down. We don't suffer as a result of blind fate or bad luck. 
There are no karmic forces at work in the universe that are paying you back for something bad you must have done in the past. No. Christian suffering takes place under the sovereign control of God. All of it. Now, that doesn't mean that God causes evil things to happen, but it does mean that God decrees, he controls the direction and the outcome. Uh, At the end of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, the ones who had sold him into slavery, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What does that mean? The evil things that happened to Joseph were evil, but God redirected it for his intended outcome. And in that sense, the trial was necessary. It was necessary. It all fell under the sovereign control of God. Second, trials are necessary because they bring about God's greater purpose. Most, listen, most of what you are in terms of your wisdom and strength and character is a result of hardship. You know it's true, and so do I. We tend to grow very little when life is easy and comfortable. Almost all of our meaningful growth in life occurs through difficulty. That's the necessary purpose of God in trial. If you've ever seen a butterfly trying to break through its chrysalis, oh, you might be tempted to help it out. Wouldn't that be kind and noble of you? to open that thing up a little bit and help it out. But listen, it's only through the struggle that the butterfly's new wings get their strength. And so if you help it out, you're actually killing it. It won't be able to fly. Trials are necessary in forming us and making us more like Christ. Then Peter says trials are necessary. It's a great revealer of faith. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying here is not unique. This was not his idea. Paul says it. James says it. Jesus said it. It's all throughout the Bible that suffering is a type of proving ground. Peter uses the picture of gold going into the furnace. Because only in the furnace can gold be tested. Only there, in the, the, the heat, can the impurities in the metal be separated out. And your faith, Peter says, goes through the same crucible. Life heats us up and melts us down in a million different ways. You know, there's, there's this popular phrase, I'm sure you've heard it. It says, oh, God... God will never give you more than you can handle. But that just isn't true. We we are constantly burdened by more than what we can handle. And that's when who we really are and what we really believe gets exposed. It comes to the surface. And so I, I want you to think of it this way. Maybe we can bring it home a little bit. All of us suffer hardship. No exceptions. We are collectively dealing with hardship right now. A unique one. Well, the question then becomes, when life heats us up, where do we turn for hope and comfort and strength? And let's ask ourselves this question individually and sincerely. 
Do I turn to food for comfort? Do I turn to, to drink? Do I get drunk? Do you turn to pornography? Do you turn to Netflix or social media? Or do you just kind of curl up in a ball of self-pity and give up? See, when, when life gets hard, so often our thoughts turn inward and we think only of how can I escape this feeling? How can I escape this hardship, this predicament? And y'all, that's perfectly natural. All the things I just listed, those are perfectly natural responses to our pain. But Peter says to us, that's not what faith does. Because our faith is more precious than gold. There is nothing stronger, richer, more stable in the face of suffering than the hope we have in Jesus. And therefore, what is natural to us in the midst of pain and suffering and anxiety is no longer who we are. We have a different map. We navigate differently because we have the greatest hope there is, a living hope. Faith is proven in the fire. What we really believe will rise to the surface. Now, I I kind of looked at that from a negative slant just now, but Peter wants to, to show us the positive here. Look at verse 7 again, one more time. He says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When true faith in Jesus is revealed through trial, we're told there is an everlasting outcome, a result And it is praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the return of Jesus. I I want you to know, Peter is not saying this only to people who have great faith. And and I, I trust that every one of us, if you're listening, you wish you had greater faith. So do I. You wish you had a more transcendent, more conquering kind of faith. So do I. But listen, this promise in 1 Peter 1 is not just to those kind of people. Peter is not talking about great, magnificent faith. He's talking about genuine faith, true faith. You may not have very strong faith in your own estimation, but you have a strong Savior. If your genuine faith is in Jesus, then you have great faith because the object of your faith is great. It's Jesus who saves you. It's Jesus who empowers. It's Jesus who promises and fulfills. Don't beat yourself up if you're not as transcendent a Christian as you think you ought to be or wish you were. Even feeble faith in a great Savior still overcomes. And that ought to be a great comfort to us. Praise and honor and glory forever for those who are tested and who are found to be faithful. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're going to turn out better than okay. And see, this is, lastly, this is the source of our joy. The source of our joy is not a what, it's a who. It's verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. Think about it now. Peter's audience, these people had never met Jesus in his earthly ministry, and yet they loved him. They couldn't see him physically in the midst of their present pain, but they trusted in him. Peter, right here, he's affirming, you are passing the test. You are being purified and perfected right here and now. These people he's writing to, they are treasuring Christ more than they are treasuring their own lives. They love Jesus more than they love ease and comfort and safety. They trust Jesus even if it meant losing everything else. They trust him. And they do it with joy. Now, how is that possible? We may look within our own hearts and wonder, man, could I, could I do that? Do I love Jesus like that? But here's what Peter's really saying. Our capacity for joy is proportionate to the source of our joy. This is not flimsy spiritual encouragement. This is not, oh, don't worry, be happy. This is not put your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and hope for the best. No. Peter is saying you put your faith in Jesus and therefore your capacity for joy is equal to the source of your joy. Your capacity for joy is equal to the source of your joy. If Jesus is your hope and your joy, what crisis can overtake you? What pain can overcome? No, you've been given a new birth, and therefore you've been given a new map, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of navigating circumstances, a new way of hoping. You, are, you can be as joyful as Jesus is glorious because he is the source. And therefore, there is no limit to the joy we are capable of experiencing, even in the worst of circumstances. And so may God give us the grace to navigate this season with wisdom and courage. And because of Jesus... May we live right now, right now, may we live with joy inexpressible and full of glory. If he is our hope, we have no limit for our own hope and joy and courage. Let's pray. Father, you have granted to us everything through Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything we need to navigate this life, everything we need to enter into the life to come, Lord, it has all been graciously provided for us. We receive it by faith, and I pray this, this day that we would not carry with us any lingering belief that somehow our ability to measure up is what makes these things so. We have not measured up. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified as a free gift through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because he rose from the grave, our hope is alive. And Lord, whatever we need, all the equipping and strengthening we need for today, we have it. Thank you for it. Lord, would you give us the grace to live it out? 
who better to shine the light of hope and courage and wisdom and generosity and selfless service and joy, who better to show the world what it looks like than those who have it secured for eternity? Who better to reveal true life to the world right now than those who have received life in Christ? Lord, make it so. Give us the kind of joy and courage and grace that come through your Son who was given for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.